Welcome to episode 277 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is the Learning the Night Sky episode. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So uh, before we uh, get going on Learning the Night Sky, we had an email here from uh, from Simon. Shane, do you want to uh, maybe take a take a read of this one and, and talk about it for a second before we get into Learning the Nighttime Sky? Oh, yeah, sure. I just hit my space bar. Uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, hi, Chris and Shane. I have a little question about the compatibility of various drinks with astronomy. Mm-hmm. Do drinks like hot coffee or chocolate have an effect on observing powers? Uh, I guess if you have too much, then shaky caffeine hands might pose a problem or not getting any sleep when you eventually retire. A related question is alcohol. Assuming you haven't driven anywhere to observe or have so much that you fumble around with a telescope too much and discover some new ring nebula. (laughs) Uh, Joking aside, I did wonder if some nice hot coffee in the winter to stay awake during the cold nights had a detrimental effect on observing. Cheers, Simon. And I know you gave him a a fairly detailed reply, Chris, so I'll let you take over here. Yeah, so I thought that was a pretty good question because... um, you know, we might not think what we drink would have too much of an impact on observing. So, um, first of all, I kind of give you my preference. So, I am a, a very big fan of coffee. Uh, the, those that listen to the show might know that. Um, Shane, you're not as much of a coffee drinker. You're more of a tea person, I believe. Well, both actually. Both, I, I okay. drink tea and coffee every day uh, and exclusively coffee on the weekends. Oh, okay. All right. But you'll like sometimes when we're out camping, I, I notice that you'll, you'll make tea instead of coffee. So I think you switch back and forth maybe a little bit more than I do in the morning. Um, well, for, for a while now, I've been pretty much coffee the entire oh, okay. time we go camping. I, I do like, uh, I do like my coffee. All right. Good stuff. And where are you on the hot chocolate bandwagon? <laughs> I, if I go snowshoeing in the wintertime during the day, okay, uh, I do like to stop and, and have a little hot chocolate. But when it comes to observing, uh, actually when I observe, I don't drink anything warm. Um, okay. I just make sure I'm hydrated prior to observing, but yeah. Yeah. So for me, when, uh, when, when I drink coffee is like, uh, pretty much every morning, uh, I drink about three cups, which they say is like, kind of like the maximum amount of coffee you should drink in a day anyway. And, uh, you know, and it's fine up to three cups, but over that you can, uh, end up with some problems like glaucoma, uh, which is an eye problem, uh, runs in my family. And, uh, so yeah, I drink my coffee in the morning and then, uh, that's it. I don't drink coffee for the rest of the day. And usually I'll drink, uh, some tea, uh, at some point in the day. And if I'm observing, actually, what I'll do is I will drink green tea, Um, a lot of the time when I'm observing it, I was, I don't know why it just, for me, that is like a thing I like to do. I do like to have a warm drink. I know that a warm drink will actually keep me warm. And there is like a tiny little bit of caffeine in green tea. Um, it's enough just to give me a little bit of a boost, but it's not really enough to impact my sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to these kind of beverages though, um, and observing itself, uh, coffee in a very small amount can improve your visual acuity. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so it, 
it's not going to like, yeah, for sure. If you're drinking enough that you're going to be shaky or whatever, but I've actually seen Mike do this where he'll show up with like the world's tiniest coffee and he'll be, he'll be drinking like this tiny coffee. And, and so that can actually be pretty good, especially if I remember the last time I saw him do this, um, he actually came out, it was pretty late. It was in June and we were going to basically observe all night. And so uh, he drank a little coffee. I can't remember what I had. Um, I think I just had regular tea, like regular caffeinated tea, um, which probably have about the same amount of coffee as his like tiny little thimble sized Starbucks. I don't even know what, what they call that in their Starbucks language. But anyway, it was a pretty small coffee. Um, and that can improve your visual acuity and it can it can kind of sort of help keep you awake. My problem with coffee is and, and anything really caffeinated is this, Shane. I don't know if you've noticed this as well. But like if I'm going observing, I find like, uh, or anything, if I'm trying to stay up at night, I find that I still get so tired, I'm not really functioning very well. Um, and yet at the same time, I can't even get any rest. So I feel like I'm sort of in this wonky kind of netherland of not really being quite awake enough to to do productive things. And yet, uh, if I do want to try to sleep for an hour or so to kind of regain some wakefulness, I, I can't get that either. I don't know about you, but that's how I get yeah, yeah, I get to a point where I'm either exhausted or I have a lot of eye fatigue when I've been yeah. up late into the night and that that just ends it for me and if I'm caffeinated then I don't rest well. Yeah. So my usual approach if we're doing a, a later night obs- observing session, yeah. it's uh, right around supper time and supper time for me is kind of that six o'clock range. Uh, I'll have a can of uh, like Coca-Cola, something like that yeah. with a little bit of sugar, a little bit of caffeine and that and then that's it the only thing i'll drink after that is uh is water for the rest of the night yeah i can i can get on board with that i will often drink i will always bring water with me for sure that is absolute key like you were saying stay hydrated i will definitely bring water with me and uh and before i start observing i'll drink like um at least a quarter cup of water and because sometimes i just get busy or forget but i make sure i get uh you know sometimes even before i get in the car i'll just drink like a glass of water um, cause I just find that that is probably the best thing. So coffee in small amounts. And then, um, let's see, he referenced, uh, alcohol <laughs> and alcohol is, is probably, uh, one of the worst things that you can have because, and I don't know if you've ex- ever experimented around with that, but like, since I have my cabin, sometimes we'll be out there and I'll just have like a glass of wine with dinner mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, usually if I'm going to observe or I know I'm going to observe, I don't drink any alcohol at all because even if I just have a like a small, like even a half glass of wine with dinner, I will notice a detriment on my vision for observing. I don't know if that's just me or what, but I notice that um, it can also be demotivational to observe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not even like I'm drinking very much alcohol at all, just a very small amount. Um, I do enjoy having a glass of wine, but I'm not really much of a drinker. Um, and so sometimes I'll just have like half a glass of wine with dinner and that's enough to impact my observing. Not sure if you've ever noticed something similar, Shane. Yeah. I find, uh, if I mix alcohol with astronomy, it's usually a much shorter observing session. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm always concerned, even if I've had just one beverage, um, I'm always concerned about just like dropping an eyepiece Mm because, you know, even I, especially as I age, Chris, I notice that even like one beverage really has an impact on me. So I, uh, I typically just don't. Um, And if I do, it's a very casual session. And sometimes it's not even with a telescope. It might just be with binoculars because, 
you know, you put the strap around your neck and you're less likely to drop them and all of that stuff too. And physiologically, um, so alcohol can um, rob your body of um, water. And so it's, you're going to be operating in a more dehydrated state. And it's just the opposite of what we were talking about before where we try to get hydrated. So mm-hmm. alcohol is going to not only dehydrate you, but it also brings um, the warmth out of your body. What happens mm-hmm. is your capillaries that are close to the surface of your skin, they will uh, expand. And so your skin might feel warmer, but your core is actually cooling faster. So like in the conditions that, that we're in out here, um, certainly... Uh, you know, when you're getting into these really cold weather conditions, that that can you know present uh, not only a detriment to your observing, but uh, it could be it could be downright dangerous, I suppose. But certainly, um, it's not going to help your observing, and it's uh, it's not going to make for as an enjoyable experience. Uh, anyway, any comments on that? So, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned like the kind of the cooling effect that it has. And yeah, I've certainly noticed that as well that yep. I'm just not as warm and that, you know, leads to not observing as long or as comfortable. It's just something I'm not that interested in. Yeah. So then, uh, when it comes to hot chocolate, um, I'm not a really big fan of hot chocolate. I don't know why, but, um, it's okay. Every once in a while I like to have one. I am a huge fan of chocolate though. Mm-hmm. And so chocolate is actually something um, again in some moderation uh, that can help improve your observing and especially if you're at altitude so if you're somebody who is um, observing above 3,000 feet elevation i'm not talking you don't have to be on top of a mountain but having observed at the top of mountains at like observatory locations um, for sure 100 percent, i am taking chocolate with me when I go up and observing at those locations, uh, it does a variety of things, um, in moderation again, and I'm drinking, I'm not drinking, I'm eating like a harder, um, darker chocolate and, uh, and you don't want it to be overly sugary or anything like that. And that can definitely like the chocolate itself can, I think the problem with most hot chocolate, like we make hot chocolate, it's a little bit different, um, is, is that it's just going to be almost like pure sugar and might not really have too much in the way of actual chocolate in there. It might have things in there that are going to be detrimental to your observing, like too much sugar. There's like a waxy substance that I'm actually allergic to. They like to put into chocolate a lot of the time. So for me, there's only like a few chocolate type things that I can eat, but like the real pure chocolate, I have no problem with. And, uh, I eat it pretty much every day just cause I like chocolate a lot, but, uh, uh, actual proper hot chocolate that was properly made with proper dark chocolate um, could benefit your observing. Uh, like I said, so long as it doesn't have too many additives and so long as it doesn't have uh, too much sugar or that waxy stuff that uh, some of us can't actually eat. Yeah. Good to know. All right. In the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about learning star patterns, star names, deep sky objects, because we received an email from Gene, who is uh, a Patreon supporter. Um, maybe we should mention, like, we're having a, a bit of a giveaway mm. for some of our Patreon supporters. Shane, do you want to just uh, hit on that topic briefly before we move on? Yeah, for sure. So um, we're a little scant on some of the details, but what we're doing is we just want to say thanks to our Patreon supporters in a different way. Uh, Whenever we get a new Patreon supporter, we always announce it on the podcast. 
thank that person as well as everybody who has ongoing Patreon support. Uh, we really, really do appreciate that. And what we're doing is a bit of a giveaway to anyone who is a Patreon supporter. Uh, it'll be a random draw. So all of the Patreon supporter names will kind of go into a hat and we'll pull a few winners. And what these folks will receive is a combination of uh, Observer RASC, so Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, uh, one of the observing handbooks and, or a RASC, uh, observing calendar. Yeah. Um, so we're excited to do this giveaway. And again, just, uh, it, it is so meaningful to receive that support and we really do appreciate it. So it's, it's just our way to say thank you. And if, and if you're an RASC member who has those, we'll, we'll think about an alternative because I know there's a few, I'm, I'm going to take one of our patron supporters out to lunch when I go to Nova Scotia, I think. So you know who you are. <laughs> so right that'll on. be that'll be good there. All right. So Gene wrote Gene wrote this really great email because it's something it's it's nice and short, but it's something that Shane, you and I here have heard this so many times, but I don't think we've uh, directly addressed it on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll just read this. It's very brief, but I I think it's uh, it's something we can we can chat about. Uh, Gene wrote, "I would like to get better at navigating the night sky from memory." I have a few books that you recommended, but they have a ton of information. What order and what is most important to memorize? Is it the constellations or specific star names or perhaps favorite objects? I'm not the best at remembering names and directions, or at least it's not happening natural just yet for me. Perhaps I should approach this like a class and study flashcards or something similar. Anyway, I'm just wondering where to direct my efforts Thank you, Gene. And then he wrote a postscript. Uh, would love to hear a live stream, even if it's not live, of an observing session. I don't have any observing buddies slash mentors. And uh, hear what you were doing thinking for a typical session. Love your show. I get a lot of it. Gene. All right. Well, uh, uh, before we dive in, thanks so much for listening, Gene. We do really appreciate it. Appreciate you being a Patreon supporter. And uh, we really appreciate this question on learning or memorizing the stars and constellations. This is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just on his PS about the live stream, we've both wanted to do this for a long, long time. Uh, I think you're buying a new microphone that should get us a little bit closer to making yeah. this happen. And, and we definitely want to try it. Probably what we'll do, uh, once we get like that right microphone is we'll probably try it. And then if the yeah. quality of it is good enough that, you know, we think it would be engaging, we'll put it out there. Uh, if the quality isn't so good, we, you know, maybe we can try some different things, but we, yeah. we certainly want to get like, uh, not unnecessarily a live stream, but record us at the eyepiece and mm -hmm. just how we proceed through an observing session. So yeah, excited to do that. Yeah. So thanks. Uh, thanks for the suggestion. I, I know, um, I think I, did, I think I did write back on this, but, um, Shane, we tried, I tried it twice, uh, this summer. Um, I tried it once with Mike and I think I tried it once with you where we were just kind of talking while we observed and, uh, yeah, it wasn't, so having the phone in hand while I observed is, um, like, it's like a juggling act and I'm changing eyepieces and I've got, and I was like, oh, the logistics on this. Um, and that was in the, the first one was in the day when the moon was going through eclipse and once it kind of got dark enough, I just gave up. Like I was like, I, I can't, I couldn't do it in the dark. So I, I need to get a proper mic hookup for my cell phone and then uh, do a recording that way. So I'm going to go pick that up because they're finally on sale. And so I'm going to go get that mic and hook up today. And then um, the other thing that we were chatting about maybe is, and I have my nephew 
I'm going to see if he'd be up for doing a recording session with me when I'm back home. I'm going to take it home with me and he wants to do an observing session with me. And I thought it would be really great to record some of that session with him because um, he's a brand new astronomer. He's um, a younger person. And, uh, you know, I, I can actually maybe give some more insight into how to learn the stars versus just what I'm doing at the eyepiece, um, which who knows what Chris is doing at the eyepiece at 3 a.m., right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, again, I already replied to uh, to Gene, but I, I've I've given us some more thought. I and I really wasn't as happy with my reply, and so um, you know we've talked about the sheen, and uh, and typically we often get this question about learning the night sky after we do like when we go down to the grasslands or do a star party in the summer or something. We give one of those laser guided tours, eh? Mm -hmm. you, you know, and then people come up afterwards and they always ask, where do I get that laser? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The lasers are cool uh, and it makes that outreach, uh, uh, I think a little easier, but um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go on. <laughs> it's yeah. It's, it's more like a Pink Floyd show than a, anyway. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, typically after that, we try to dissuade and, and convince people not to go get a laser pointer because they don't know what they're pointing at. And certainly if you point at the wrong thing, you, you can get a pretty hefty fine. Um, but then, they, then they're asking, well, what I really want to know is how do I learn the sky, you know, like, uh, like, like you know it. And, you know, we're going to go through a lot of different things here, but I actually think that the very best way uh, to learn the sky um, in my experience is, is by explaining it to other people. That's kind of been my, my experience in doing it. Cause I've done it quite a bit and, and it's certainly a, a learning experience both before I do it. And then when I do it every time I kind of rethink and, and think about the questions that people ask and, um, you know, how to make it a more enjoyable experience for those that are listening to it and, and participating in the event. And then, uh, you know, and then try to try to improve upon, upon that. So, I, I think um, you have to get to that point. You have to get to a certain point. We're going to talk about that in a second. But um, but once you get so far, that is probably um, the thing that has helped me the most is simply going uh, and explaining it to to other people. So I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that one, though, Shane. Well, I, I you know this is yet another topic where I think it really varies by individual and how mm -hmm. we consume information and learn. So whatever is unique to your um, your best way to acquire knowledge and remember it, you know, is probably what you apply here. Yeah. For me, it really was just getting out under the night sky uh, repetitively and finding objects. And then through that process, you just start to organically learn all of the constellations without needing a reference over time. Yeah. And then you start to also learn where some of the key objects are. Uh, so after, you know, a period of time, you won't have to look at a star map to find M42 or M13. Yeah. You'll just know where they know where are. Is. Yeah. And, and to me, for me, that just happened over time. And I used a combination of uh, a planisphere. So a planisphere is an inexpensive item that you can buy that um, for any time of the year and any hour of those days, it basically creates a, a constellation map for you in your hands. So then you can quickly identify the constellations. And then I just moved to my star chart. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about the pocket sky atlas from Sky and Telescope. Uh, that's one of my most used star charts. And then I look on there to find out where the object is that I want. And then I start to star hop. And again, looking at 
enough objects repeatedly, you start to memorize where these things are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you just kind of get, I guess, better at it with, with that. And, you know, for, for me, you know, there's, I don't know what I have memorized, you know, 10, 20, 50, a hundred objects don't know, but I, I still think, you know, one of the keys is just being resourceful um, mm -hmm. so that when you're looking for something under the night sky, you just know how to find it, whether it's using the planisphere and the star chart, or maybe you already know the constellations. So now it's just star hopping or, you know, again, referencing the star chart to find out where you need to be lots of different methods. Yeah. So for me, um, there was like this really, uh, you know, I don't know, it wasn't a eureka moment, but it was, you know, one of those rare moments in life. Um, maybe when you're a younger person, I was a younger person, I was like 15 or 16 and I was lying on the ramp that goes to our floating dock and it was low tide and it was like about nine or 10 o'clock at night. It was dark in August. And you know, the floating dock ramp is on an angle because the tide is out. It's at maybe a 50 degree angle. So it's fairly steep. And I'm lying on this thing and I'm looking up into the sky and I don't know why, but I, maybe something was on the radio. There was a lunar eclipse like the month before, and maybe I heard people talking about the stars on the radio or something. And so I knew that people knew like the star patterns and, you know, how you could sort of navigate around the nighttime sky. And I knew a little bit about that, just mm -hmm. growing up on the water and growing up in a, you know, like people in my family are involved in, um, boating and stuff like that. So there's some celestial navigation uh, sort of in my background. And I'm lying there on this thing and I realize that I, I knew I was kind of looking up into Cygnus and I'm like, but I don't really know that constellation, but there's the Milky Way up there. And I knew that people knew all these star patterns and how those constellations kind of link together. And that if you knew this, you could see sort of what lay beyond them if you had a telescope. And I kind of knew that general um, idea. So my mother had been cutting out these little star charts in the newspaper each week and it took it took quite a few years but kind of over time i slowly learned like the big dipper cassiopeia orion these sort of things and these are all just naked eye things i didn't need a telescope or binoculars but i think to get going i would recommend a somewhat similar path um i didn't have a little red flashlight so i was using a white light with these charts and it was sort of dimmed down a bit but not quite right but i think you need to get a little red flashlight you can make one, just get one of these cheap little um, cylindrical lights that people have, and then just get red duct tape. And you can build one of these for about 5 or $10 with all the parts. Or you can buy a proper LED astronomy flashlight at, um, you know, at, at a telescope store. Just order it online or on Amazon or something like that. It might cost you $20 or $25, something like that. The other thing that you're going to need, apart from a red light, and the red light is going to keep your night vision. The problem with the white lights is when you look at the charts, the white light's going to bounce back. It's going to constrict your eye and it's not going to be able to take in the, the faint starlight you're trying to see for another 15 minutes. And by that point, you're going to forget the star chart, uh, star patterns you just looked at. But I recommend having um, like a magazine that's going to show the evening uh, sky as you're seeing it and Sky and Telescope, Astronomy Magazine, Sky News uh, here in Canada. These are all good magazines to start with for something like that. And then ideally, you're going to have your copy of Terrence Dickinson's Night Watch as well. And Night Watch has these really great uh, four drawings. They've got a naked eye view, and it's a drawing, but it's a very accurate representation of sort of um, white or very dimly colored stars on a sort of uh, blackish gray blue background, which is uh, representative of what the night sky looks like from a good 
reasonably dark location. And then on the other side, they have um, a sort of star chart on what this represents. And I think I'd never really seen this before, and I haven't seen it done as well since. And I think that section of the uh, the of the nights uh, the night watch by Terence Dickinson. That's what you want is night watch by Terence Dickinson. That's going to have um, the best uh, way to begin uh, learning those constellations and those those star names. And I think if you bring along a small pair of binoculars, uh, that's really going to help get you going. Yeah, yeah. You know, and one of the things too, Chris, that I've done in the past is. Um, there's nights where you're not necessarily observing, you know, you're not, uh, for whatever reason, maybe you were out with friends and now it's 11 o'clock at night, you're getting ready for bed. Um, it just to go out into the backyard and look up at the sky and start identifying the constellations and ones that you don't know, you look up and then again, over time yeah. uh, with that repetition, you just start to learn where they are and what seasons when that they appear in mm -hmm. and uh, having the knowledge of, of being able to identify constellations really is a huge asset at the eyepiece because it's yep. just one less thing for you to have to look at a, you know, a star chart or some sort of reference for. Yeah, exactly. And then the key stars and constellations to begin learning are to begin with what we call the uh, circumpolar sky, which is the Northern sky. This is going to be a little bit different for everybody because it changes a little bit depending on your latitude. But for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, this is what we're referring to. You're going to have the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper there. I think those are patterns in the sky. They're not really constellations. These are just patterns. Constellations proper are simply these artificial boundaries. But just for simplicity, we're going to refer to the star patterns as constellations here. So you want to learn the Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper patterns, and then kind of work your way out from there. Many people listening to this already will know these patterns. You might even know Cassiopeia, which is opposite of the Big Dipper in the nighttime sky. You might know things like Arcturus, which is the brightest orange star in the bottom of Boots, which is a large kite-shaped asterism, which is prominent in, you know, sort of late winter, spring, and early summer. It's getting to be low on the horizon right now, so probably not a great spot to start. But these circumpolar, these northern constellations, they're they're always going to be up. That's what makes them circumpolar. And there's other constellations that are up there, but a little bit dim. And as you learn those prominent constellations in each region, you know, like the Big Dipper, Little Dipper, the W shape of Cassiopeia is pretty easy to see. You can find something like the Great Square of Pegasus, which isn't circumpolar. It's a little bit further south. There's going to be some other constellations that you're going to be able to learn and jump out and then just start learning the constellations that are next door or adjacent to those constellations. You'll be able to fill out your knowledge pretty quick. Any yeah, thoughts absolutely. On any of that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a good way to go. The other thing that is a little bit tricky, I talked to uh, Gene a little bit about this, is there, there were studies done during World War II and they were teaching pilots how to navigate without lights or other instrumentation so they could keep their planes dark avoid enemy fire and what they learned is that once a constellation rotates by about 15 or 20 degrees the constellation becomes almost uh, like learning a, a whole new constellation and people will find this as well and i think that's one of the things that makes it a little bit different from learning anything else so if you think about the big dipper right now which is sort of starting to come up from the horizon and it's slowly going to stand on its tail for the winter um you know that constellation of the of the big dipper that pattern of the big dipper standing on its handle you know with the handle pointing down towards the horizon looks very very different than when it was sort of sitting just on the northern horizon sort of flat like a saucepan that you might recognize 
And so just think about the fact that those constellations are going to turn and rotate. And as part of that turning and rotating, it means that you really need to have a different um, concept of what all these star patterns look like in their various positions. Because um, it doesn't matter how long we do this, Shana. I, I don't know about you, but I can go out and I look at these patterns. I think, is that the great square of Pegasus? No, wait, that's not mm -hmm. it. Because, you mm -hmm. know, like there's other stars that kind of look like that. And then because of the different orientations, um, it can look really, really different. That and and if you learn the constellations inside of uh, the city, like a light polluted sky, and then go to a dark sky where there's a lot more stars, it can be really disorienting. And yep. agreed, like as much time as I've spent under the night sky, sometimes I get confused. Um, the other thing that can throw me off sometimes is uh, if I forget about the planets, which I do occasionally, and then I yeah. think that that's a bright star, then yeah. I'm like, well, what constellation? That doesn't look right. And yeah. then it especially oh, when yeah. I'm tired, you know, and then it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, that's Saturn. That's, <laughs> that's why I'm, you know, a mess, but I, I still sometimes go to my references on the constellations just yeah. to get the orientation and everything, because you're right. It, it can change and it can be confusing. Yeah. And I think the other thing that, that can cause this confusion is that, um, typically more than, uh, two seasons of skies are available at the same time. So what I mean by that is, typically the season so right now we're in the we're getting towards the end of autumn and so when it gets dark around five o'clock for us on these nights and we go out and we look at that sky we say well that's the autumn sky and the central constellation the autumn sky is pegasus so pick like the main central constellation in that seasonal sky in the autumn it's going to be pegasus in the winter it's going to be orion mm -hmm. in the spring it's going to be leo and in the summer, it's actually going to be um, the summer triangle, or maybe for you, it's going to be like Sagittarius or one of these other constellations. But you're going to pick one of those central constellations to that season, and you're going to build yourself out from there. Now, the added complexity is, um, and I remember when I was first teaching astronomy to people, is that I, I had a person who showed up in my class, and she said, you know, gee, Chris, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I know some of the stars and constellations, but uh, this was in the spring. And she said, uh, boy, I'm just not seeing Leo in the night sky. And so through um, a couple of conversations, it took me a couple of kicks at the can to understand why um, this person who is a really, really smart person, um, why they couldn't find this constellation. And that's because I didn't ask when they were going out. They were going out in the morning. And of ah. course, if you go out in the morning in the spring, you're not going to see Leo high up at 6 a.m. or whenever it was she was going out. You're going to see a preview of the summer constellations and Leo is going to be way over on the southwestern horizon, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing to keep in mind is that in the evening sky, that's what we refer to as that season. But if you get up really early, you're really going to get, you know, what they often say is like a preview of the next season. And even still, if you get up or if you go out really early on these nights, even though we, we talk about um, Boots as being more like um, a spring or a summertime constellation, um, you'll still see most of Boots if you've got a really good Western horizon right now. You'll still see it for a short time just as it's getting dark and then it will set. And so there is this complexity of different seasons being available at any given time. But I think the key is, is to pick that central constellation for the time that you're going out 
and looking at the sky. And, you know, we, we can get into that. Maybe what we'll do is we'll try to do an episode on what those central constellations are and then build it out as we go forward here, um, you know, over the coming months. I think it's it's a really good idea, a uh, really good seed that Gene has planted here, at least in in our minds, of maybe how we can help walk some people through learning or memorizing the constellations and star patterns because it does seem like a bit of an overwhelming task and i don't think we can just sort of cover it all in one shot here shane yeah yeah there's a lot to discuss so that that makes sense to me yeah so we'll get into this uh, a little bit more in some coming episodes and we'll try to sort of create these sort of key stars and constellation um, episodes and then really walk people through what they uh, can use to act as guideposts in the nighttime sky to really fill out that knowledge because I think that's an important thing and maybe we haven't quite uh, dove into those uh, as specifically uh, in the past. So anything else to add to this episode, Shane? No, that's everything, Chris. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. As Shane mentioned at the start, we uh, it's not a contest or anything, but what we're going to do is for uh, anybody who is an active Patreon supporter, um, by the time December rolls around, we're going to do uh, a random draw and we're going to give away um, some RESC Observer's uh, calendars, uh, which I edit. We're also going to give away some uh, RESC Observer handbooks. And uh, and this will act as, as a thank you to our Patreon supporters and uh, look forward to... Uh, to diving more deep into these uh, memorizing the night sky uh, constellations and star patterns with you, Shane. Yeah, sounds good, Chris. All right, thanks again, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>